Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. But if you will uh, turn with me, please, in your Bible to, uh, as you've probably guessed, Luke's Gospel. And we are still in the sixth chapter, but we're going to be starting at what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, um, as Luke records it. Matthew records, you could say, the extended edition, and, uh, and Luke records somewhat of a condensed uh, recording of this message by Jesus, but... Um, we're going to get started in it, and I will invite you to stand, please, as we read. And we'll pick up at verse 17 for our reading, and um, we'll just read down to the end of the uh, section there, verse 23. So Luke 6, and starting at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Amen. Let's pray and ask him for his help now as we look at his word. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we, Lord, we, we do acknowledge that, uh, Father, we live in, in times when there are uh, so many voices calling for our attention, Lord, and people offering their version of the truth, God, and we thank you that you have preserved your word through your scriptures to us, God, that we can have your truth in our own language, Lord, for men and women you've raised up through the ages to lay down their life even, that we would have your scriptures translated. And God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit, Lord, our counselor, the one to guide us into all truth. We pray that that would happen now. Lord, as we look at these very uh, often confusing words of Jesus to our minds, Lord, that you would give us insight and understanding, that you would guard my words to be in accordance with your scriptures, Lord, that I would speak uh, that which is edifying and uh, building up, Lord, and, and uh, proclaiming truth to your people. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to worship you now uh, with our minds as we meditate upon your word together. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> So Luke has very carefully and very precisely laid out his gospel for us. 
and we have seen the miraculous birth of Jesus as he records uh, the account for us. He has given us a glimpse even into the childhood of Christ as he was in the temple and there listening to the teachers and talking and told Mary that he, that he must be in his father's house. And then we get to see Christ as he begins his ministry, his baptism by John and the, the blessing of the father upon his son, the anointing of the spirit and Jesus overcoming uh, in the wilderness the, the evil one who would tempt him. And we've really, up to this point, um, really seen the work of Christ. Luke has, uh, event after event, shown us the authority of Jesus over the, over the demons, the authority of Christ over sickness, the authority of Christ over creation, and even the great catch of fish. We've seen the authority of Christ over sin as he pronounces men forgiven. Uh, we have seen Christ as Lord of the Sabbath, and we have really seen many of the works of Jesus. But then, as we looked last week, he calls his 12 disciples, and almost in reminiscent of Moses, coming down from the mountain about to um, establish the people of God, we have Christ coming down from the mountain after having prayed all night with the Father, and he appoints the 12 apostles, those who would, would establish this new Israel, this spiritual Israel, the church. And now, Christ is going to give the instructions. He is going to give his teaching. Um, it, is, it is not a teaching that, as some would say, is contrary to the law, as though the two are opposed. You have the, Moses bringing down the moral law of God and the instructions for Israel. Christ bringing down the teaching of his, of his kingdom. And the two are not opposed, but rather Christ uh, really brings into view the very heart and spirit of even the law of God in the Old Testament. These same truths resonate throughout the scriptures that Christ now instructs in, uh, to his disciples. And so uh, this morning we're just going to look at the first one, uh, what are sometimes called Beatitudes. And uh, apparently Beatitude just comes from the, Greek, the, the Latin word, not the Greek, the Latin word, um, beatitudo, which just means blessedness. So these, these blessedness uh, statements, that what it means to be blessed as Christ defines it here for us, we're going to look at the first one. Um, in these passages, Jesus reveals the economy of God's kingdom and the marks of those who are true members of it. He is unpacking, he's unveiling for us the nature of his kingdom and how to identify those who are truly members of this kingdom, the true citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, I think all of us would acknowledge that people, uh, whether Christian or not, are seeking, however they would define it, the blessed life that humanity has within the fiber of our being to seek after blessedness. And the, the difference would be in how we define blessedness. What does it mean to truly be blessed? Um, it is almost like we are on this road, this pursuit of happiness, of blessedness, and there is a fork in the road. And on the one side, there is a very broad path with many, uh, many traveling it, and the other side is a narrow path with few upon it. And Christ is going to um, describe for us this narrow path 
of his kingdom and those who are seeking true happiness as he defines it. I don't know if many of you, um, some of you have probably seen, I, was, I thought of the, uh, the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, and, uh, in which case I, I think it was Will Smith was the actor, but essentially the, the entire movie is his pursuit of what he would understand as happiness. And it really is a picture of, in many ways, the American dream, isn't it? Uh, in his life, his, his job is failing, his family is failing, and, and by the end of the movie, he's very successful in his job, and he's you know, re-establishing those family relationships. He's finding um, wealth and, and pleasure, and, and, and then that's supposedly him finding happiness, this pursuit. That's often how the world understands the blessed life and uh, I think as Christians, we too get drawn into this definition of what it means to be blessed. But Christ, here in the Sermon on the Mount, unpacks for us what it truly means to be blessed according to God in his kingdom, blessed for all eternity. We know that this world is not uh, eternal. The things of this world are passing away. It is temporal. And God himself is the source of all life. And therefore, as we try to understand what does it mean to pursue the blessed life, what does it mean to truly be blessed, we should be very interested in what Jesus has to say. Um, As we look at these words of Christ, you can't help but see how completely opposite this economy of God's kingdom is from the one we live in. The two are so different, it is no wonder that Christ was crucified because of his teaching, because of the offensive things that he said against the people of his day. And so, um, here is the, the main truth I want you to walk away with this morning, um, as we under, try to understand what does Jesus mean by this first beatitude. It is that those who perceive Their spiritual poverty are the truly blessed and heirs to the kingdom. Those who perceive their spiritual poverty are the truly blessed and heirs to the kingdom. And I think that really gets at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. We will compare a little bit with Matthew as we go through this. Um, In Matthew 5, he records the Sermon on the Mount as well. And uh, as I said, he in many ways, records the extended edition. He has a a fuller account in many ways. He records nine Beatitudes of Christ. Luke here only records four. Um, There are parts that Luke has, um, like these woes, which Matthew does not include. And Matthew goes on for several chapters um, recording this sermon from Christ. Some would say that maybe this was actually two different sermons and Jesus was teaching uh, similar things. Um, I don't think there's any reason to, to um, take that stance. I think, you know, if you, if you imagine uh, multiple people videoing the same event, um, I just noticed that my, my phone has this ability to, I guess automatically, it will take the, the last videos from the previous month and make them into a little uh, compilation of videos and you can watch it and and it's really sad because my, my wife and I were, were watching one from the past month and, you, you know, watching your kids play and different things that have happened and just start, like, bawling because you're like, I just love this so much. This is so... So it's actually good, uh, good for the soul because sometimes we can forget the blessing of, 
of uh, what the Lord's given us. But if you were to compare mine with my wife's, same event, but different parts of that event. And I think that maybe is how we could help be, would be helpful to think of the Gospels. As they witness the same event, they record different parts of it. And uh, it's as we, we bring them together that we get this kind of full uh, panoramic view of the life of Christ. And it actually speaks very much to the authenticity of the gospel records. Some would point to these differences between the Sermon on the Mount from Luke and, and Matthew and say, aha, there's a contradiction. Why, why are they a little bit different? That must be because this, uh, this scripture is, is with error. But I don't think that would be the case at all. In fact, it would speak to the authenticity of their accounts from different perspectives. And so I think Luke is very much recording the same sermon that Matthew records. And um, you have to also remember that Luke is writing to Gentiles, Matthew to Jews. And so Matthew naturally is going to include parts that are very relevant uh, to the Hebrew people, whereas Matthew may, may not. Um, and uh, so we'll compare a little bit, but just to be aware of that. So here's the question I want to answer this morning. What are the keys to understanding this statement by Christ? How, what do we need to understand to really uh, know what Jesus is meaning here by blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom? And we have three keys that we'll, we'll get through this morning, Lord willing. The first one is to see that Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. I think that is very important as you try to understand the Sermon on the Mount. We are told in verse 20 that Jesus lifts up his eyes on his disciples and says, and then we have the recording. Matthew records the same thing, that Jesus uh, on the mountain sits down, he opens his mouth and begins speaking to his disciples specifically. Now, uh, if you're like me, when I think disciples, I tend to think the twelve. Um, But as we learned last week, there is a distinction between apostle and disciple. So this isn't just to the 12 apostles. This is to all of those who are truly believing upon Christ, who are taking his yoke upon themselves in his teaching, in their practice. This is applicable to all the disciples of Christ, not only the 12 apostles. And, um, And I think that's important for us to really understand the, the very essence of what Jesus is, is saying in these uh, mind-boggling statements. Because some will say this Sermon on the Mount is just, you know, just for everyone to live a little better, to be a little better. This is just a lesson on ethics or on morals, and it's just kind of universally applied to humanity, and every person uh, can, can benefit from these words. But this is a word specifically to the disciples of Christ. And I think that's important because as we try to understand them, we must understand it's in the context of those who are believing upon Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. They are identifying with Christ um, in that salvific way. We know that Jesus... um, Again, we looked at this last week, prayed, and and as he prayed in John 17, said, All the words that you have given me, Father, I have given to the ones you gave to me, these disciples. And so here we have Jesus taking those words from the Father 
and giving them to the disciples specifically. And um, it is a, a helpful metaphor, I think, even as we consider the, the love of Christ towards the world in general. Yes, he absolutely has a love for all of humanity as his creation, as those who are made in his image. But there is also a unique covenantal love that Christ has towards his own, towards his sheep, if you want to go with that picture, towards his disciples, um, as we see here. And, um, and it is, in, in the same sense, I could say that I love children. I, I love to, to be around children. I love to, to uh, you know, just bless children. But there is a unique way in which I love my own children, um, in that fatherly way. And I think this message is specifically for those who are the children of God. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you you might say, well, I don't profess to be a Christian, I don't profess to follow Christ or to be a disciple, then I would encourage you, before trying to benefit and understand the teachings of Christ, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and become a disciple, follow in baptism. And uh, and that is the first and, and, and important key um, if you are to really apply these beatitudes to your life. To seek the blessed life, you must first repent and believe upon Jesus and become a disciple. And so I want to encourage you here if you have not done that. Now, as a disciple of Jesus, those who are seeking the Lord, who have turned from sin, who are looking to Jesus as Savior and Lord, um, then let us try to really seek the Lord that we would be marked by these marks that Jesus lays out for us. So first of all, the key, we must understand he's speaking to the disciples, to his own here. And the second key then is understanding what Jesus means by blessed. What does this word mean? Uh, what does Jesus mean when he is speaking of this blessedness? Now, the word uh, sometimes can be translated as happy. Uh, some will, will just say that happy are those who are poor. Um, it's a little bit of a challenge for us because when we think happy, we tend to link it to an emotion. Um, not so much as, a, as an identity, but it's more of an emotional word for us that we feel happy. And so that might be a little bit uh, fuzzy if we just translate this word as happy. Um, and we throw blessed, blessing around a lot, which adds to our, our difficulty in really understanding what Jesus means. For example, if we get a promotion at work, we say it's a blessing. Um, if we have a baby, it's a blessing. If we get a new car, it's a blessing. If the mechanic tells us that the car, look fine, the car looks fine and, and it was just a loose belt, and that's all that the problem was, and that's a blessing, we would say. And uh, if the doctor tells us that we're doing well and that our health looks fine, we would say, that's a blessing. And we use this term almost the same way oftentimes as our culture would use the term. Anybody would acknowledge that to, to get a little bit more income from work or to have a clean bill of health or to, to have a mechanic tell you your car is running great, all, anyone would say that's, that's a good thing. We all would desire that and, and we would say it's a blessing. The problem is when we come to the word, the, the word of God and we see how Jesus himself is using these words, it is so different, it is so opposite that we almost can't understand what he's saying because we don't 
talk that way. Nobody rejoices in, in a time of poverty or in a time of hunger or in a time of, of weeping. We don't think of that at all as, as blessing. It is opposite. And so we have to be, uh, I think, we have to do some hard work in, in trying to understand this word. I think if we think of it as um, of a person who is highly favored, specifically in in connection to God. That is what this word is getting at. It is referring to divine favor upon someone. And so it is not just based upon our current circumstances, but rather it is as God looks upon you and you're standing before God, you are in a position of great favor and blessing. And I think that is how, how Jesus is, is using this word here. Um, and that really does change the picture, doesn't it? That we are in a position of favor before God himself. Also, the, the way in which Jesus uses the word blessed, um, he will specifically define it a bit further for us. Look what he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So this blessing specifically to this first beatitude is in connection to the kingdom. And so the blessing is that you are an heir, you are going to receive, you're going to be part of this kingdom of God, um, this eternal kingdom where the presence of God is manifest and his joy is your joy. And so the blessing is, is in connection to the kingdom of God. Um, so let us be careful as we think about how Jesus uses this word. Let us be conscious, how do we think of blessing? Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong to give thanks for, for God's provision or from, from uh, God answering a prayer of feeling better or of God, uh, you know, of a vehicle that's going to run a little bit longer. That, that's nothing, there's nothing wrong with giving thanks. We ought to give thanks for those things. But as we think about what it means to be blessed, let us, let us test ourselves when we're going through what many would consider a trial or a struggle or we're feeling um, the, the emptiness of, of maybe our pursuits, is that a blessing? Do we think of it that way? And I think we need to train ourselves to think biblically of what it means to be truly blessed, truly in a position of favor before God. Um, Sometimes I find it helpful if you're thinking of, oh man, this would be such a blessing. This, was, this would be so wonderful if this would happen. Uh, ask yourself it, if it will still be a blessing a thousand years from now. And a lot of times what you find is the things that we are longing for, the things that we really feel would be a great blessing to our life, um, will be totally irrelevant a thousand years from now. You know, it, it, does it really matter if, if we have the, the newest iPhone X a thousand years from now or whatever the newest was, probably another one out. I don't know. I can't keep up. Does it really matter if, uh, if we didn't have the, the brand new vehicle that we were wanting or if, if we faced some kind of struggle in our life with our, with our children that, that maybe it's not always smooth sailing, but that causes us to seek the Lord in prayer and to, to be humble with other parents who are struggling. Which is the real blessing? And a lot of times, it can help if we think of it in light of eternity. 
looking at the big picture and then defining blessing according to God's standard. Um, one of my favorite examples of a person who, who talks like this is, is uh, Johnny Erickson. Um, and if you haven't listened to her testimony, I encourage you can just type in uh, Johnny Erickson on YouTube and you can find her, her story. But uh, she was paralyzed, I know I've used her as an example before, was paralyzed as a teenager, 18 years old, I believe, dove into a pool that was shallow and broke her neck and as a result is a quadriplegic and has been so for many years. But to listen to her talk of her paralysis, um, she acknowledges the struggle and and even the great time of, of just anger in her heart towards God that this had happened, but now she will actually talk of the blessing that it has been to her life because it has forced her to be a woman of prayer, to depend on the Lord for strength, to learn what it is to be served by others. And she will thank God for this paralysis that she has. And I think that is getting to really the heart of what Jesus is talking about, this true blessedness, this true Uh, being in a position of favor before a holy God. And so so how do we define blessedness? Uh, As Christ is using it, it is one who is most favored before God. And as a result, when you look at the woes, Jesus has this list of woes in verse 24, woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are full, woe to you who laugh. The woe would be the exact opposite of that. It would be someone who is least favored before God would be the unblessed life. So that's the second key, understanding um, this biblical use of the word blessing. And uh, this is not a new concept for especially the Jews. Uh, as you think about the Old Testament and as they walked in obedience to God's law and his covenant, they received the blessings of God. If they walked in disobedience, the curses of God would come upon them. And they were very familiar with this blessing and cursing language which Jesus is speaking. So the third and final key, and I think probably the most difficult to really understanding uh, what Jesus means by this statement, what does it mean uh, to, that blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God, The third and final key is to understand what Jesus means by poor. Uh, This is is very, uh, I found very difficult to try to really, in in, in the biblical uh, view, understand what does he mean by this. Uh, It's important, I think, to understand he's first talking to his disciples. So this isn't just an economic poverty. Otherwise, all those who were poor would be naturally saved. They'd be naturally brought into the kingdom just because of their uh, economic poverty. So it cannot be simply that. Um, But what does Jesus mean? What does it mean to be a person who is poor in the sense that Jesus means it? Now, probably for us living in North America, we experience many blessings. Um, I I don't know if some of you probably saw the little uh, video It was, um, if the world was 100 people or something like that, Uh, very interesting. I I suppose it's based on true facts. What they do is they they say if the population of the world was 100 people, um, how many people would be Christian? How many people would have a television? How many people would have a running vehicle? How many people would have three meals a day? And uh, when you start watching those statistics, 
you realize how privileged we are, how much wealth we actually experience. Even if you are often living paycheck to paycheck, you are still experiencing tremendous wealth in our culture. Um, We have an abundance of food, vehicles, we have homes, we have access to technology that much of the world does not have. Uh, I think when it, even, even having a, a television in your home, if the world was 100 people, it was like one person or maybe two would have one out of 100. Um, very sobering for us to think about. And I think because we experience this, when we come to these kinds of passages uh, that Christ uh, uses this language, we naturally want to assume it has nothing to do with economy. It has nothing to do with, with our, our, uh, our possessions probably because we're very fearful that he might require us to hand them over, um, to offer them up to himself as a sacrifice of praise. So I don't want to totally ignore that side of it, the economic poverty. We know Jesus himself lived as one who, he said, had no place to lay his head in Luke 9.58. Jesus was not a man who experienced tremendous well, He grew up in poverty, one of the poorest places um, in Nazareth there. And so, I mean, I don't understand how these health, wealth, prosperity gospels have anything to stand on. When you look at Christ and his disciples, they were poor. They had nothing, no material possessions really at all, um, and, and, and no great inheritance. I mean, we know that some, Peter, uh, had had a, a home, we, it would seem. So it's not that they didn't own anything, but they were not men of tremendous wealth and possession, which can be frightening to us. Also, as we look at the scriptures, we see God's heart towards the poor. Um, God has a heart for those who are poor, those who are weak, those who are unable to care for themselves. And even in the prophet Isaiah, he tells us the true fast isn't just keeping your religious festivities. It's caring for the widow. It's caring for the poor. It's caring for those who have little. And so I don't want to ignore uh, the importance of us understanding God's heart towards those who are down and out and have very little. Partly, I think, it's because there is a connection for us. Um, We see this with the rich young ruler who had tremendous wealth. And yet, when, when he comes to Christ, asking him about eternal life, Jesus tells him to, to sell everything. And he can't. But the issue isn't with his external things, and I think this is really the key. It's not, the issue is not with his possessions. It is with his heart that loves his wealth. And so he can't sell all that he had because in his heart, he loves it. He, tre- he cherishes it more than Christ. And that is really the issue. So I think part of the connection with people who are poor, who have very little, it is very easy for them to understand the gospel message that we are all spiritually bankrupt, that we have nothing to bring to God to earn his favor, that we are in a place of complete poverty before a holy God. And that we must receive from his fullness through Christ who died, who rose again. That all of our wealth that we would have before God is because of Christ. We offer nothing to him. And that message is very difficult for someone with a lot of physical wealth to understand. They can't fathom having nothing to bring. They can't fathom having nothing to offer 
because they feel like they have everything. And so the, the connection between our, our physical state and our spiritual, uh, I think, often maybe plays into this. But at the same time, we have to balance that because, yes, at times Jesus told people to sell everything and follow him, but other times he did not instruct them to do that. And so it wouldn't be fair to say that we, the way we apply this beatitude is that we all seek after poverty, uh, you know, that we all, uh, dare I say, follow the example of our, of our government right now. It's just, let's just rack up all the debt we want and let's just seek after poverty and that's how we inherit the kingdom of God. No, that's not what Jesus is saying either. Because there are times when he does not instruct those with wealth to get rid of it and to seek after poverty. Um, even as the psalmist said, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but provide for my needs, because in poverty I will become desperate and steal, but in riches I will become puffed up, but rather provide for my needs. And we know that in, in 1 Timothy uh, 6.17, Paul gave instructions to the rich, and his instruction was not to get rid of all of their wealth, his instruction was not that you must seek after poverty. You must give all of that away immediately or else you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's not what, what Paul said. He said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So he, Paul tells the rich Use that wealth, use those resources to bless and be careful that you're not prideful about it. Don't set your hopes on those riches, but keep your hope on God. But he doesn't tell them to seek after poverty. So what is the full sense in which Jesus tells us to become poor? Matthew uh, really, I think, helps unlock this puzzle for us. We flip back to Matthew just for a moment. Matthew 5. Matthew includes one word that uh, Luke does not, and it's very helpful in understanding what does Jesus mean by becoming poor. And we're told in, in chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there is, I think, the key Christ is not primarily talking about an economic poverty. He is talking about a spiritual poverty, a state of the soul where you understand you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to bring to God that would please him. You have nothing that, that would, <coughs> excuse me, would gain merit before a holy God in and of yourself. All you have to bring is your poverty, your need, your sickness to Christ spiritually. We bring our filthy rags, which we're told that all of our best deeds are like filthy rags before God. We bring that to Christ. He takes our rags, clothes himself in them, and he dies on the cross as someone who is cursed by God, someone who is unclean. Christ takes our filth, our poverty, our spiritual bankrupt, 
bankruptcy, I don't know, that's a word. And, and there Christ dies for us. And then in his resurrection, he is able to now pardon those who call upon him, and he transfers his righteousness to us by faith. And so this is really the entry point into the kingdom of God. This is the starting point for the disciples, and it is something that we never, uh, as my former pastor would say, that we never graduate from being poor in spirit. You don't get to stop being this kind of person, this kind of kingdom citizen. You continue calling out to God for his grace. Um, I had several examples of, of people. I won't turn there. I'll just make reference to them, and you can jot down the reference if you like. There, uh, in, Luke, in Luke 7, 4, a little bit further. Well, that one, we just got to turn a page, so you might as well turn there, 7, 4. Um, you have this wealthy man, a centurion, who has a servant, and he comes to Christ asking that he would heal his servant. And um, the, the, the man says this in uh, verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And there is a man who has, a, no doubt, a lot of economic wealth. He's a, a ruler, um, a centurion, and yet a man who is poor of spirit, saying, Jesus I am not even worthy to have you come under my roof. You just speak the word and, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels at the faith of this man. And I think there is a man who has wealth and yet is poor in spirit. The same could be said for Zacchaeus later in Luke 19, a man of great wealth. But he had this poverty of his spirit. He had this desperate need that he would climb the tree just to look at Christ. And here's a man who again had great wealth and yet was poor in spirit and needed the Savior. And Christ, in coming to his house, doesn't actually tell Zacchaeus to sell everything. Zacchaeus takes the initiative and gives half of what he owned away, and, and anyone that he cheated, he pays them back four times in Luke 19 too. But, but you see, the, the, the issue is the heart, this, this desperation of the soul, this poverty of the spirit before a holy God. That is what Jesus is talking about. And it is those who can perceive this need that, that, that because of it, they call out to God. They are the true kingdom citizens one more example, and then we'll close. Um, this is somewhat of a negative example, but I think very clear again that this distinction between the economic wealth and the spiritual wealth or poverty. In Revelation 3, there's a church in Laodicea, and this church is, is doing well from any outward perspective. And yet, listen to what Jesus says in verse 17 of this church. 
He says, I, I know your, this is uh, Revelation 3.15, sorry. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. So there is this, this perspective. This church feels that they're really wealthy, that they don't need anything, that they are doing good. <clears throat> Excuse me. But listen to what Jesus says as he exposes their spiritual condition before him. He says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And so sometimes there's a perception that someone is doing well in the Lord. Someone is, is strong. Someone is wealthy. Someone is very independent. And yet Jesus would say, no, spiritually speaking, you are in a desperate state of need. And the sad thing is, is that for many people, they do not perceive this need. There is nobody who is spiritually wealthy before God apart from Christ, but, but the majority of the world cannot perceive their poverty. And this is why when we present the gospel with somebody, we must be careful that we don't affirm them in what they already believe. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, often is the message that we bring to the unbeliever. But they already think that, they, that, that God is in, in love with them and that he just thinks so much of them and that their life is supposed to be wonderful. When in reality, the message needs to be, listen, you are in a very dangerous condition if you are not in Christ. You are spiritually bankrupt. You are going to stand on judgment day with nothing. You will be exposed. All of your filthy thoughts will be exposed before a holy God. You need to flee to Christ. Repent. Turn from your sin and take this salve from him and take from him the gold refined by fire. And you see why we must understand the importance of this condition of poverty before God. Spiritually, we are a people in great need. And we talk of first world country, third world country, and we think of ourselves in North America as being among the most privileged on the planet. But Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which was not a gate in Jerusalem. He's saying it's impossible. You can't do it. You must become poor. You must empty yourself of all your confidence, all your hope and your wealth, and you stand before God and you acknowledge, I have nothing to give. I cannot pardon this debt. I cannot pay my crimes. I need your grace, your mercy through Christ. That is my only hope. And I fear that North America, because we are so confident in what we have, we cannot perceive our spiritual poverty. And so we need to pray that God, by His Spirit, would enable us to perceive our need, that He would open our eyes, that people would understand we, of all the nations in the world, are the most sick, the most in great need of our Maker. 
Why is it that first world countries experience a far higher suicide rate than third world countries? Because we know the emptiness of our own effort and it is maddening to strive after the wind and realize you've got nothing in the end. So I'll close and leave you with this. It was um, a little prayer from the Puritans from the little book, The Valley of Vision. And uh, this was a prayer that one uh, man wrote. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. And so let us seek the Lord that he would expose our need of him and enable us to call out and that we would not run from a state of spiritual poverty before our God, but know that it is right there as you begin to see that need before a holy God. You are the most blessed. You will inherit the kingdom of God. And so let us be such a people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know, Father, that we are so influenced by the things around us, by the things that we watch. God, and I fear even times for my own soul, Lord, at how prone I am to wander. God, would you call us back? By your Spirit, would you open our eyes, Lord, to the great spiritual reality of our need of you, God? Would you, would you help us to turn from the fleeting pleasures of this world and to see Christ as truly precious, as truly valuable? Lord, would you make us a people who are poor in spirit, Lord, that we would inherit your kingdom, that we would be identified with Christ. And we pray for the salvation of those who do not know you, Lord, that you would rescue them, that you would, Lord, by your Spirit, enable them to perceive their need of you, God. And we pray for guidance and direction as a church. Oh, Lord, let it not be said of us that was said of Laodicea. Lord, we want to be rich towards you. We want to we want to be a people who are depending on you. God, we, we don't want to have Christ say that he stands outside the door and knocks, but Father, that you would be actively at work in our midst through your Son. And so I, I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.